From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Brendan Telerik. Today, Doug Dangler talks to singer-songwriter Lucy Kaplansky, member of the folk supergroup Red Horse, which will be in Columbus for the Six String Concert Series September 23rd. But first, guest interviewer Alexis Martina talks to 25-year guru of fundraising and nonprofit management and author of The Complete Idiot's Guide to Grant Writing, Wadi Thompson. Hi there, Wadi. How are you today? Thank you so much for um, agreeing to be a part of this interview. I'm happy to do it. So the first thing I I think that is really interesting, to me at least, about your story is that you didn't always aspire to be a professional grant writer, um, that actually your training um, is in music um, and that you were a composer. So can you talk a little bit about how you made that jump from the, the arts and music world to kind of grant writing? Well, the first grant proposals I ever wrote were to get money to pay for a concert of my music. And um, I, was, I was very lucky in that the first two grants I wrote, first two proposals I wrote were successful. So that, you know, gave me a big shot of confidence in, in that area. But at the same time, I, you know, you, you don't make your living as a composer in the United States these days. <laughs> and so um, I already had a day job in its administration. And it only took me a, a couple of months in the job to realize that if I was going to have a career in arts administration, no matter what role I might play, I needed to know about fundraising. So I signed up for two classes at New York University, the Heyman Center, where I'm actually now an adjunct professor, and took an introduction to fundraising class and then a grant writing class. And that was really my start. And everything else that I learned, I learned on the job. Initially, I was doing individual giving and membership. And uh, when I was at at the Whitney, through a quirk of circumstance, both grant writers left the institution within a couple of months of each other, right after the director development position had changed. And he was rather panicked, Mm -hmm. (laughs) not surprisingly. It's suddenly a large portion of his staff and all of his staff in one area going away. And I was like, over here, over here, me, I can help out with that. So um, he gave me the go-ahead, and I wrote one grant to get a, a grant for marketing money for my membership program. And then I wrote another grant for another marketing program at the museum. And things were, were going well. And it was because I had done those grants that I was able to transition from being a specialist in individual giving to getting a director development job. And and is uh, arts an an arena that's particularly hungry for grant writers? Everybody is. Going in in development in general is like one of the smartest career moves I've ever made and that I think anyone can make. The skills are totally transferable from one sector to another. You frequently see people who, on their resume, um, they're five or ten years as director of development for an orchestra, and the next ten years they're director of development at the local hospital. People move around from sector to sector. Um, a lot, and the grant writing part of it is there, there are always jobs, uh, even in the worst part of the current recession, there are always jobs available. You're making the students smile in here, just so you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, 
One of the things that really struck me kind of going through the Complete Idiot's Guide to Grant Writing is, is, is a word, you use a word repeatedly that I don't know is commonly associated with grant writing um, kind of on the street. Um, and that word is curiosity. Can you talk a little bit about the quality of curiosity and, um, and its connection to good grant writing? Right. Well, a healthy sense of curiosity is essential to anyone in fundraising. You have to want to know about other people, to learn about different programs. And if you're not interested in that and and willing to delve down, uh, you know, really dig down in the information, you're not going to be successful. One of the main mistakes that amateur grant writers make is they, if they do research, they just skim the surface. So, for instance, they see that a funder is interested in supporting technology projects. And so they write a grant for their technology project uh, to increase the the technical capacity for their food bank to distribute food throughout the city. Had they looked a little closer at the grants the funder makes, they would have discovered that the funder only makes grants for technology related to children's causes. And so, you know, a lack of curiosity, you go, oh, well, that's what they do, and just go off sort of, you know, half-cocked on that. But it goes beyond just knowing what what the funder is about, because all fundraising is personal fundraising. It's all personal. There's a person on the end of the end of the line when you're calling a foundation. And the more you know about the people associated with the foundation, also the better you're going to do. So someone who doesn't have a, is not curious about other people and other things is not going to do the level of research that's necessary to really be successful. Right, and you actually do write in the book, uh, research is the most important thing a grant writer does, which was another statement that was really striking right. to me, and it seems that that's really in line with the kind of things that you're you're talking about right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we. Uh, I know I spend most of my, my grant writing class that I teach about the actual writing of it, but if you don't do good research, it's irrelevant. Uh, good research and mediocre writing will be more successful than lousy research and fantastic writing. Um, and, and your section on research includes a guide to online information, but then it also includes a section on offline research, uh, which I think can sometimes get overlooked in the kind of tech-savvy society. So why did you choose to include a section on offline research separately, and, and what are those advantages? Right. Well, I think it's particularly true in the arts, where we still publish a lot of paper uh, things, sure. and um, there's there's all kind of information. And when you go to a concert and and you're sitting there waiting for the concert to start, there's that list of donors in there. Fabulous research. Um, but it's not just in the arts, because anyone who publishes an annual report, there's a list of donors there. Any any solicitation you get from any charity is going to have some information about where they're getting their money from. And if that charity happens to be similar to the one that you want to fundraise from, well, there's some of your research. I mean, I think one section is called the research, research in your mailbox or something like mm-hmm. that. And um, just, the, you know, getting on lots of mailing lists for similar organizations and seeing what they're putting out is great research for you. Okay, so you've done your research. What's the next You have to be able to make a really persuasive and coherent argument. Uh, You know, people talk about the elevator speech where 
you should be able to describe in just a few seconds precisely what you do. And that one powerful statement is just so, so important. Um, something that you can put in the cover letter, something that you can put start the proposal off with, something that really grabs people. In the, um, the Heath Brothers book, Made to Stick, it's a wonderful book for grant writers to read. They talk about surprise as being one of the important elements. And, you know, a surprising fact. One of the students in my grant writing class last semester works for Planned Parenthood. And so I said, well, what, what is the Planned Parenthood? We all know what that is, but what's the surprising fact that you could tell us that would really grab our attention and make us keep, keep reading? She said, there are more offices uh, and clinics of Planned Parenthood in the world than there are McDonald's. Oh, wow. And I was like, whoa, you know, I have a whole new perspective on that organization immediately. That, that one fact, I, I now want to read about how they get into all those different communities, how they support all those communities. My curiosity has been piqued. And that's just, you know, that's just so very important. So having the, the one grab your attention sentence and then developing a really coherent argument where one thing follows to the next um, well, there are lots of things to keep in mind, and I'm not going to ramble on about sure. <laughs> in response to this one question. Um, well, and the, and the book covers a lot of those things. Well, all of those things, actually. It's quite comprehensive. And one of the things that I think that you talk about really well in it is um, when you talk about jargon in creating the, the necessity of eliminating jargon um, which you call the, the scourge of grant writing, in creating that coherent argument. Um, why is jargon such an egregious mistake? Well, jargon is for insiders. And when you use jargon to people who are not insiders, it's a put-off. You want the people reading your proposal to feel like they're an insider. And if the foundation you're applying to specializes in hunger or the arts or children's causes or whatever, they're probably the people who work there are probably quite knowledgeable about those things. But still, they may not be told, well, they're not usually knowledgeable when you first write to them. And so to use uh, lots of abbreviations and technical terms, um, it's just going to be off-putting. I mean, you never want, the, the whole proposal process should be about answering questions, not provoking them. And if there's a technical term that they don't understand that you haven't explained, then you're not going to engage them that way. I like what you just said, actually, about answering questions and not provoking them. How does a grant writer figure out what questions to answer? Are there standard questions? Um, are there some questions that are specific to different projects? And how does the grant writer figure that out? Well, a lot of foundations uh, basically give you a set of questions they want you to answer. And so that's helpful. Okay. But it's not the end of it. I mean, there may be some obvious questions that they don't feel like they need to ask. One of the things that people frequently fail to address is how are they going to pay for this project other than the money they're asking the current funder for? And not only how they can pay for it this year, but how they're going to continue it. Funders don't want to pay for something that they're going to invest some money in and then it's going to evaporate. So sustainability over the long run is a question that people frequently forget to address. I like how you keep coming back to it, this idea of just telling a cohesive narrative, which is, I think, maybe another way of talking about grant writing that people might not think all the time, just kind of telling a story in a very cohesive way and making sure all the pieces fit together. You also talk about, in your chapter on budgets, 
you talk uh-huh. about telling your story in numbers. Yes. Um, and so, so what does that mean, and why is that so important? Well, again, the, just like the proposal, the budget should answer questions, not provoke them. And even though, you know, if you're creating a budget for your project, this may be the only project budget you've, you've ever created for that type of activity. But if the foundation supports it, they've seen hundreds of budgets like that. And if you've left something out, they will know immediately, which is why I use the who, what, when, where, and how uh, mnemonic to try to remind people of all the different things that have to show up in the budget. And in fact, everything that's in the budget should have a corollary in the narrative and vice versa. I frequently will do budgets first with a project grant because I'm kind of numbers-focused and it helps me think about the project and also it helps me decide how much money I'm going to ask for. And so then I do that, then I work on the narrative, and then I come back to the budget and I look very carefully to make sure that there is this correlation between things that are discussed in the narrative and things that appear in the budget. And, you know, jargon can hurt you in laying out the budget, too. If you are using some obscure program abbreviation in the budget, you don't want the person to have to flip back through 10 pages of narrative to find out what the abbreviation means. It really should stand on its own. And in fact, at the end of my class on budgets, I hand out a budget and ask the class to tell me what the grant's for, to to construct the narrative just looking at the budget. And they usually can do it. Great. So can you talk about something that stands out in your mind as a particularly rewarding experience that you've had writing grants? Well, one of the nice things is that when you're, when you're in fundraising and when you're doing grants, you can look at anything that your nonprofit's accomplishing and take pride in it that you helped make it happen. And, um, of course, in the performing arts, you know, I go to the concert and I see them up the performance on stage, and I know they wouldn't be there if I hadn't done my job well. Yeah. And that's a very terrific feeling. I think some of the grants that have in some ways been the most satisfying were the ones toward the beginning of my career where I didn't know as much what to expect. And so the successes were just a little more more exciting. Not, not that I'm blasé about it by any sure. imagination. Since the, the economic collapse in 2008, um, foundations have cut way back on their giving. And in the last year or so, the government funders have started to cut uh, way back to the New York State Council for the Arts has had their budget reduced to one-third of what it used to be. And they have, like, only about 20% of the staff that they used to have. It's really, really dire days. And, you know, with the economic turmoil continuing, it's going to be quite a while before foundations feel comfortable enough to start loosening their purse strings a little bit. So what do you think that that means for kind of the future of grant writing and grant writers? Well, it makes it makes what we do even more important. Sure. You know, the harder it is to, to the, the less money there is around, the more organizations will have to have uh, knowledgeable, talented people to do this job. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of a good thing for sure. us professionally. <laughs> right. The need for more uh, talented people to get the money that is available. Right, right. I mean, there's always going to be money. I've had board members be very discouraging. Oh, well, government doesn't have any money anymore. Well, that's not true. They have less money, mm-hmm. but they still have money. Sure. And foundations, by law, have to give away part of their money every year. 
so there's there's money there. It's just like it's a lot more competitive because there's less of it. Sure. And you talked a little bit at the at the beginning about how you came to um, have, get this project, the the Complete Idiot's Guide to Grant Writing. Um, can you talk just a little bit about how you decided to organize it and how you approached kind of writing a book on this thing that you do all the time, grant writing? Right. Well. I think one of the reasons I got the contract is that as, you know, the second I hung up the phone with Marilyn, I started thinking about, well, what should this book be? And to know what it was going to be, it's, it's like, who's going to read it? Right. Which is when you're writing a grant, it's the same thing. Who's going to read this grant proposal? And then you write it according to that. You know, if it's for a scientific project and it's going to be peer-reviewed by other scientists, you're going to write it at a different technical level than if it's going to be just reviewed by the trustees, none of whom are scientists. And so I thought, well, who's the audience for this? And thinking that the audience would be people starting out in the profession, but I know there are a lot of people who do this as volunteers for a lot of community organizations. And so I sort of put down all my assumptions about who the audience was as sort of a preface to my outline. And the outline was just pretty much the, you know, the process I know I go through. One of the interesting things that happened during the process is uh, also I got the contract on January 27th, and the finished manuscript was due June 15th. Oh. Three, 300-page manuscript was or rather ending up in a 300-page book much longer in TypeScript. Wow. In that, that short a period of time. So pretty much after I finished my day job. That's pretty much all I did for, for those six months. Of course. <laughs> yeah. But one of the things that happened is I would get very, you know, into it as I was writing during the night and I would write, write down how to do one part of the process. And I go, yes, that's exactly right. And then I think, hmm, is that how we're doing it currently? <laughs> <laughs> and so the next day I would come in and talk to myself, all right, gather around folks, because we haven't really been doing this exactly right. We have to change it and do it this other way. <laughs> Um, it was just a really, it's one of the most satisfying experiences of my life, being able to really think through very carefully every aspect of the process and put it down. When you're a grant writer, you're being edited by program people, by your executive director, by all kinds of people. So it's seldom that what you believe is you know, the absolute right way is what shows up on the funder's desk, because yeah. there are always changes that get made. But, you know, there was a technical editor and a copy editor on the book, but pretty much this was my vision of how this should be done. It's wonderful, and it's it's so well laid out and very complete. Complete idiot's guide to grant writing, certainly. And I I, I think that, that the the message that you're trying to get across here comes across really, really well, very clearly. And so that makes it such an enjoyable read for anyone who's just kind of starting out or just looking to polish his or her skills. Is there anything else that you would like to add? We're going to go ahead and um, finish up here, but is there anything else that I didn't ask about that you just really would like to say or something that that we've missed out on? Well, one impression that I, I come up against sometimes is that people think that you can't get a grant unless you have a connection. And that's simply not true. Connections help. They certainly help, but they are not foolproof. Uh, I had a trustee be very excited about a project once, and um, when I submitted to the application to her foundation, 
it was rejected because it didn't exactly meet their guidelines. So her her enthusiasm did not override you know the rest of rest of the boards, and I've I've certainly gotten many many grants with no personal connection. So the skills of the grant writer in research and writing are very important, and I just like to stress it's not just about connections. That's a great ending note. Thank you so much. Thanks for being willing to chat with us this morning. Um, I know as an instructor, you are invested in education of students as well, um, and yep. so we really appreciate it. I'm happy to do it. Great. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks, you too. You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. That was Wadi Thompson, grant writing and fundraising specialist and author of The Complete Idiot's Guide to Grant Writing. For more information about our guests, visit the links at writerstalk.org. Now, Doug Dangler talks to folk singer-songwriter Lucy Kaplansky. Tell me about Red Horse and working with the other members of it. How did it get started and how do you work together when you're writing? We've all been friends for years. John and Eliza have sung together quite a bit. Eliza and I have sung together, but the three of us had never, as far as we know, ever been in the same room together, much less sung together. And um, But we were all really pretty huge fans of each other's music. And um, about a year and a half ago, Eliza somehow got the idea she emailed me and said, you want to do some gigs, you, me, and John? And I thought, wow, that would be so fun. And I mentioned it to my husband, and my husband has had all the great ideas in my life, and he said, why don't you guys make a CD? And I thought, that's a really good idea. So I emailed Eliza and John and asked them if they would be interested, and they both said, sure. So that's really how it happened. It was really kind of a... um, the, the plan was to be able to do some gigs together. And it turned into kind of a bigger thing because of the CD. The CD has been really well received. We were on NPR. So it kind of it's taken on a life of its own in a way we didn't really expect. We're all doing our own things also. So we do, I guess it's coming down to probably about a week and a month as a group, and then we all do our own things the rest of the time. So we, you know, so... In terms of writing, we're all, you know, doing our own thing most of the time. So it's not interfering with anything. It's just kind of this added wonderful bonus for all of us, I think. And so fun and so artistically satisfying. So that's really how it happened. Okay. So let's go back to uh, talking about the writing, actually, because that's what I'm really, really interested in. And uh, I noticed that you've got a background that includes uh, a lot of different kinds of writings. Uh, you have a PhD in psychology, right? Right, yes. So uh, how does that figure into uh, sort of the different kinds of, of writing that you do? Do you, obviously, you probably don't sing to patients, but I'm wondering about how you think that that's affected your ability to do lyrics and um, maybe the subject matter of your lyrics and things along those lines. Well, it, you know, it's all, I, that's a good question. It's, a, it's a kind of a long story. I, I'm going to sum it up by saying that I always really wanted to be a singer. Actually, didn't even really write seriously till I was, had already become a psychologist. I never really took myself seriously as a writer. Um, Went, became a psychologist because I was really running away from the thing 
I really wanted to do. And once I figured that out with the help of a good therapist when I was 32 years old, I went back to music and then tried my hand at writing with my husband's encouragement, which I'd never done. And we pretty much um, have written to some extent everything together, one, one way or another. Um, you know, in terms of writing, like I said, I, I never, re I mean, yes, I guess I, I had to write when I was in grad school, but it's completely different kind of writing. And um, writing is something I, I guess I just gotten better at with practice and really had no idea if I would be any good at it at all. And then um, I wrote this song, Ten Year Night, in, uh, when I was, I guess, I'd already put out two albums at that point. And that... Uh, that really kind of that song really helped me get a bigger audience, and people really love that song. So and then I thought, well, maybe I maybe I can write. Um, and I guess the way I look at how sort of being a psychologist has affected or influenced my writing is it's influenced everything about the way I look at the world. I mean, it opened up a whole new way of looking at people and their motivations and their conflicts and. I think that couldn't help but sort of seep into what I've written about and the kinds of stories I've told in my writing. Although a lot, a lot, a lot of what I've written has been autobiographical and very personal. So, you know, I don't see any direct influence. I can't say, oh, yeah, I, I wrote this because I learned about this in psychology. It's certainly not like that, but I think it certainly affected my worldview. Now, you said you're, you tend to write from a a personal perspective? Yeah, I tend to, yeah. Okay. Is there Are there songs like that that you think you'll be performing uh, when you come to Columbus for six-string concerts that um, are really th ones that you come back to, like maybe a 10-year night or something along those lines? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely going to do... 10-year night has become part of the Red Horse show, and it's partly because what Eliza and John sing on it is so stunningly beautiful. Um, and that's a very, very personal song about um, meeting my husband and kind of trying to describe how I feel about my husband after all these years. Um, you know, mostly we're doing the Red Horse material, and that is only me only doing one of my own songs, which is Scorpion. What we did on Red Horse was we sang each other's songs. So mostly it's Red Horse with a couple of other songs thrown in. That's the one I would say is really... Tenure Night's the really autobiographical one that I'll be doing. So tell me about what your new stuff you're working on. You say that when you're not working together with Red Horse, you're all working on your own things. What is the, the thing that you're working on now in terms of are you going in new ways with the music? Are you going into lyrically different areas uh, as you progress as a songwriter and as a singer? You know, I don't know if it's different areas. I mean, the last bunch of songs I've written, and I've, I think I've got enough now. I'm gonna, I'm planning to make a new CD in January. Um, the last bunch have really been very much about family in one way or another because I'm, you know, the the last four years since I put out an album have just been so monumental. My dad passed away, then my mom passed away. I become, you know, I became a mother and. There's all my life is very has been very focused on my family, and that has tended to be what I've written about really more so than ever in the past. So there's a, a couple of songs about my mother kind of becoming very elderly and frail, and then one sort of about saying goodbye to her, and then 
a song about a couple of songs about being a mother. So that's, you know, I guess that's a little bit of a change from the past. Okay. What song in Red Horse do you like to reflect on, say, lyrically, above, since you're performing songs by, by John and Eliza? Which ones really do you take home with you and you say to the people, man, I wish I'd written that song because of what it says to me as a listener and as a performer? Well, really, I mean, I do one of John's and one of Eliza's, and I could really speak about both of them. I mean, the Eliza song is Sanctuary, and the John song is Blue Talk, and they're both really just great songs, which is why I chose them. Um, they're very different. John's song is about really a couple of people, stories of a couple of people who are having struggles with substances. Eliza's song is more, um, God, I don't even know how to sum it up. It's almost like a hymn about trying to feel hopeful in a, in a, in a, in a sort of in a troubled world. They're both great songs. I, I get a lot of reactions to both of them. I wish, <laughs> I wish I'd written both of them. Um, Sanctuary especially really kind of changed because Eliza did it, kind of recorded it with a whole band, and I decided, let's try it on the piano, and I got a great piano player, Andy Esrin, and it's really, it really comes out like a hymn. It's just me and the piano. So it's pretty different from her version, and I'm proud that it worked well, even though it was different. Okay. Well, Lucy Kaplansky, I thank you very much for talking to us today on Writer's Talk. Oh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. Special thanks to our guests, Wadi Thompson and Lucy Kaplansky. If you'd like to hear more of Lucy and the folk group Red Horse, check out the Six String Concert Series coming to Columbus September 23rd. And for more information about any of our guests, visit us at writerstalk.org. Join us next time as guest interviewer Nicole Kraft talks to the Dean of Philadelphia Television Journalism, Larry Kane, about the decline of local news in his new book, Death by Deadline, Can Out-of-Control Local News Kill People? Until then, this is Brendan Telerik from The Ohio State University. Keep writing.